0: The scripture reading is from Luke, chapter 24, verses 44 through 53. And once you there if you would stand for the reading of God's word. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses, to these, you are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple blessing God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, this is a, in some sense, big milestone for us as a church because this is our last-ish Sunday in the Gospel of Luke. Um, And I have to add that caveat in because beginning in the new year, when we start with the book of Acts, uh, which is, let's say, Luke volume two, uh, Luke wrote the book of Luke. Luke also wrote the book of Acts. Um, When we start in Acts, we're going to do a little bit of a rewind through the major themes of Luke. So while we are finishing Luke officially this week, We will be back in the new year uh, to do all of Luke once more in one one go. But um, in some sense, a lot of what I'm going to give you tonight is is nothing brand new or novel. For those of you who've been with us for some time in the Gospel of Luke, uh, even if you've been with us for the last several weeks, a lot of the themes that are discussed in these verses basically just conclude and summarize and define very clearly in a couple of verses themes that have been really hammered home for the last four or so chapters of the Gospel of Luke. So in some sense, there's nothing new here. Uh, and in another sense, uh, we're going to be looking at it kind of all together. And so that'll provide something different than, than what you're used to. Uh, you might think about this like this is a, uh, a message you've heard before but because it kind of all comes together in a different format uh, in in this exact presentation from verse 44 to verse 53 uh, some of it might you might see it from a different lens or from a different kind of kind of angle Um, there are there are some things uh, especially in this season of the church's life uh, that actually are pretty routine or pretty normal Uh, for instance uh, in the christmas season we along the, we, we wait for and we celebrate for the advent of Christ. We reflect upon his first advent, looking forward towards his second advent. And that's also an, an old kind of truth. Those of you who've grown up in church or grown up attending church, um, you, you've done this basically every single year, where you long for the coming of Christ and his future return as well. And at, so advent in some sense is a, is a repeat motif every single year in the life of the church. And so it's it's classical in that sense. And it's probably rare for you to do Advent uh, while also taking a look, as we are in the Gospel of Luke, at the end of Jesus' work on earth before he ascends. In fact, our text tonight, uh, we're in the season in the church's calendar where we're celebrating his incarnation. And at the same time, because of the text that we're in, we're looking also at his ascension. So from the beginning to the end, we're, kind of putting a twist on a classical way of looking at these events as they happen. Uh, You would like to put a picture in your mind. You can think about how uh, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches are classics. They're good. Everyone thinks they're good. However, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich can, in fact, be upgraded. And that's if you remove the jelly from the sandwich and you put honey instead. And it's, a, it's, a, it's, still, it's still got some of that basic classic to it, but it's got, a, it's got something different added. And that's a little bit what it's going to be like to look at the ascension of Christ in the context of the Advent season. Because we're going to be looking at the story, in some sense it's a classic story, in some sense it's a totally new twist on that same story. And I would argue, for the better. Okay? <laughs> so, um, with that picture in your mind, let's get back into the text. Um, there's going to be three things we're going to try to accomplish tonight. I'm going to try to show you from this text how the scriptures are, uh, are speaking to Christ's work, how the Spirit aids in the work of Christ, and how Christ now presently works on our behalf. The clean way for that to be said, if you look at the title of the sermon, we're going to be talking about the scriptures, the Spirit, and the session. Session is just a fancy way of saying him being seated at the right hand of God the Father. So you can take the, the short title that I tried to alliterate on, or you could take that messier title at the beginning. Either way, it's the same content that we're going to be looking at. So the first thing we need to start with is the text itself, uh, which uh, Jesus starts in, a, in, a, in the middle of uh, kind of this same-day event that Max introduced us to uh, last week. Uh, verse 44 says, uh, And then he spoke to them, saying, these were my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. And, and if you are if you're just started here in chapter 24, you'd be saying there's a lot of referring back to things that he's already talked about. And that's because in chapter 24, uh, the angels and Christ himself has explained these words to the disciples multiple times. So here Jesus is alluding to that again. And even in this verse, he, he goes forward and says, um, These words are that it was necessary for everything that was written about me in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms to be fulfilled." So this thing that he's saying, these are the words that I spoke to you, is referring back to that Emmaus Road discipleship journey, it's referring back to what the angel said, it's referring back to what Jesus spoke to his disciples all throughout his earthly ministry, and he even summarizes here for us again, Luke does, to tell us, and by that we mean the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms are all being fulfilled in Christ. And it seems strange for him to repeat that. Uh, You know, he's already said it once in chapter 24. Luke's already recorded for us once that he has said it. Um, But in, in repeating this information, one of the things that we should as readers understand is this is a really important point for Christians to get about the resurrection of Christ. It's a really important thing for us to stand about the Old Testament scriptures that this is really, in fact, what they are all about. The crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension are all anticipated in the Old Testament scriptures. In, in our text tonight, he uses another way of referring to the Old Testament. Uh, previously, uh, when, when we looked at the text, we saw the law of Moses and the prophets were referred to, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. He interpreted to them the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Uh, in in Jesus' shorthand today, he said, he refers to Moses and the prophets again, but here he expands his reference and says, and also the Psalms. Now, the Psalms, uh, you might think, well, that's just referring to the book of Psalms. In some sense, yes. In another sense, it's referring to all of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. So Psalms, Proverbs, depending how you shake it out, the book of Ruth would be included there. So you have many of those. Basically, what he's saying is, we're looking at the Old Testament and saying, it's talking about me. And this point is something that he wants to hammer home and then verse 45 summarizes for us the, the very thing that he's hammering home, which is, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Now, when it, when it says that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, you might think, well, hasn't this already happened, right? The, he's, he's been on the road with those two disciples. He explained to them the scriptures and then reveals to them himself being resurrected. Uh, He's, he's kind of taught them the whole time in their earthly ministry. And, and here, it's not like he's giving them new content, right? He's, he's telling them the same thing he's told them at least verbatim three other times in the Gospel of Luke. But in many different ways, a dozen or so times, he's told them these exact things. That the Christ must suffer, he must die, on the third day he will rise, uh, and this is all anticipated. And so then when Luke summarizes this in saying, and then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, there's something that's going on here that's different than the previous times. And at the very least, we can observe this. In opening their minds, it's not as though he's giving them new information or new intellectual information, uh, things for them to understand. He's doing something different. He's he's opening their minds in a way that information itself does not do. Or another way of saying that uh, is if you look at verse 50, or sorry, verse 48, he says, uh, you are my witnesses of these things. I am sending you what my father promised. So stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. It's an allusion to the Holy Spirit, which they are about to receive. And in some sense, uh, Jesus in opening their minds is giving them a foretaste of what the Holy Spirit's reception is going to do in their hearts. So that the, the point of this is uh, the Holy Spirit illuminates to their minds the scriptures in a way that simple information intake does not. Now, this is teaching all throughout the Gospels. Uh, Paul makes this pretty clear in the book of Romans. There's this basic aspect of human darkness or human rebellion against God that actually prevents us from seeing the truth of God's word, even if it's presented plainly to us. Uh, you, you might think about it like the scriptures talk about human hearts as being blind, slow of understanding, uh, hard uh, or deaf so that they cannot hear. And uh, if you're deaf, uh, you can, you can uh, play, a, play music for someone who's deaf. Uh, you can turn it up as loud as you want. There's no functional ability no matter how loud the music is on the outside for them to hear and process that information doesn't matter how loud you turn it up. There's no way for them to perceive it. There's, the sense perception is not there. Similarly, if, if someone is blind, uh, truly blind meaning they have no ability to visually see anything, uh, you can turn on the lights in the room, you can turn those lights on really bright. It does not change the fact that they do not have the facilities to receive the light which is being shown to them. Uh, here Jesus, to his disciples, okay, gives them once again the survey of the scriptures and then opens their minds to understand those scriptures. And in doing so, he's giving an external relay of information and an internal heart opening of that information as well. And both are necessary for their understanding of the truth of the Old Testament. The scriptures are opened. Christ opens their hearts as well. And in that dual reality, understanding is reached by the disciples. Now, this understanding, it's clear, in some sense, in seed form, has happened several times in the Gospel of Luke, where they begin to see bits and pieces of the truth of who Christ is. They're confronted with those realities. And so here, uh, I'm assuming he's not doing anything different than he's done in prior accounts, where he's revealing to them the scriptures. But it's interesting to note that he, that in this case, Luke notes it, that he opened up their minds to understand these scriptures. It's interesting to note Uh, Because, well, in giving the Holy Spirit and in sending to them the spirit of truth, many today, many of us today, have concluded that the spirit works in a way that is different than how the scriptures themselves work. In fact, for young Christians especially, uh, which would be the majority of us, there's this uh, temptation that happens in our lives, Towards the novelty, new things and uh, and what that what that usually means is uh, Christ sent the Holy Spirit, I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit, therefore I'm going to seek insight and revelation and understanding from God, which comes through the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit alone and that's not attached to the scriptures themselves to give understanding or you might have heard it said a different way. Uh, The the scriptures are one means of understanding God and the Holy Spirit is another means by which God helps us to understand who he is. And what this text is is pretty clear about is that the work of the Holy Spirit to open the hearts and minds of the disciples happens in tandem with Bible study. It happens in tandem with the study of the scriptures. Or, Or as I mentioned when we were in the Emmaus Road text, Jesus is resurrected and right before the disciples. And rather than showing them who he was plainly, he takes them to a Bible study of the Old Testament before revealing himself to them. It's kind of a weird way of working. And here in this text, he could just pop them with the Holy Spirit and give them amazing insight into all the Old Testament and all the truths of God's word directly. But instead of doing that, he, through the plain study of the Old Testament, reveals to them himself. Or maybe another way of saying it, in this text, verse 45 does not say that he opened up their minds to true understanding of God. says so something different. He opened up their minds to understand the scriptures, which is how one comes to understand and know about God. And so there, there's this danger for us, especially young Christians, to believe in the Holy Spirit so much that we divorce him from the Scriptures, which is the means by which the Holy Spirit works to show us the truth about God. In fact, none of us should expect God to reveal himself to us outside or apart from his word. This is how it has been designed from the beginning, that he speaks, his Holy Spirit illumines, and therefore his people understand. In fact, even Moses who's given direct knowledge about God is told to write that knowledge down so he can relay that knowledge to the Israelites. Uh, The prophets are given direct words from God and they choose to write those things down so that other Israelites can be edified. The apostles are taught directly by Jesus himself and they choose to write that teaching down to pass it on for the benefit of the church. So who are we to say 2,000 years later I'm, I'm, I'm bored of that old system of Christ working and revealing and showing himself to us. Uh, I want direct knowledge straight from the Holy Spirit without the scriptures as an intermediary. Often, uh, there's this, uh, you might have heard it said this way, uh, some people uh, believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Scriptures instead of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's just uh, a false dichotomy because the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit work together to reveal to us the truth about the Godhead, and the scriptures are the means by which God has spoken and continues to speak today to his people. Okay, I'm going on and on about this, this main point, because it is really crucial for us to understand that this, the scriptures, which are thousands of years old, are the means by which we access God. There's not really a shortcut around that. There's not really a way to circumnavigate that and somehow arrive at a more true understanding of God. In fact, it is dangerous, I think, for us to attempt to short-circuit this study and meditation and revelation that God has just instituted in his providence for his church. John Calvin, uh, when he comments on this exact verse, uh, says it this way, God does not bestow his spirit upon his people... In order for them to set aside the use of his word, but rather to render the use of his word as fruitful for them. Or another way of saying that is God gave you the Holy Spirit, Christian, so you could understand his word fruitfully and productively. He does not give you the Holy Spirit so you can put the Bible on the shelf and just pray and directly access him. You certainly can pray and hear from God and understand him through his word attached to the way in which he has always spoken to his people. This is the classic Christian understanding of how God speaks. Through his word, he has spoken and continues to speak today by the enabling power of his Holy Spirit to enliven this word for us. Such that the New Testament writers can say that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and not because it's words on a page, but because it's words on a page accompanied by the Spirit of God bringing it to life in his people and even uh, for those who are not his people, it wakens their hearts and enlivens them to respond faithfully to the Godhead. So the scriptures is the way God has spoken. It's the way God continues to speak. And Jesus himself embraces that pattern by using the scriptures as a means for his disciples to understand who he is. He takes them to the law, to the prophets, and to the Psalms and opens to their minds the understanding of the Scriptures. They happen as a one-two punch. This is the way it has always been done. So what does that mean for us? Well, part of what that means is it informs how we engage in discipleship with one another and with those who might be uh, young Christians or those who might not be Christians but be curious about Christianity. Here is a pattern that God has set for us to engage in the study of his word so that his people and those who are not yet his people but are coming to him might know him better. And, and we should not say, well, we want to make Christ attractive by X, Y, and Z, other situation outside of his word. Or rather than preaching and studying the Bible, we're going to uh, just relay Jesus in more understandable terms to people who we are discipling. Young Christians, old Christians, new Christians, and those who are on the periphery of faith all have the same means of coming to know God, which is his word. And for the disciples, there's something which which we have to reflect on to understand this, but the disciples have been hearing Jesus explain these things to them for three years or so before they get it. And we might think, I, want to, I need someone to be a Christian first before the scriptures would be profitable to them, for them to understand it. Or someone needs to be not just a Christian, but a mature Christian to understand what benefits the scriptures have before it can be useful to them. Think about how much Jesus taught them that seemingly fell on deaf ears, where they heard it and didn't understand it, or he says the words and it goes out of their minds and they forget the teaching. And Jesus continues for three years to labor this way with his disciples. And then he opens to their minds the scriptures. And, and you have to believe that a lot of things in their past, according to their memory, begins to make sense and snap into place and begin to uh, connect. They begin to connect the dots of three years of previous teaching that seem to be fruitless. Now, this, this does inform discipleship because uh, if you're discipling someone who's not a Christian, or you yourself are not a Christian, you're studying scripture, that's not a fruitless endeavor because if Christ brings them to faith years later or you to faith years later, there's many things that you have studied which are essentially raw material for the spirit to connect the dots on or for the spirit to enliven altogether. My point is simply that when he is talking to them about Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, he, he has material to work with, previous understanding that they already have about these texts, that then he adds to them the understanding of the Holy Spirit, and it all kind of maps together. So that as we, today, engage in discipleship, we do not wonder, is someone a Christian or not a Christian, before we take them to the scriptures. We just go there. We read the Word. We study the Word. We uh, pour our lives into it for a clearer understanding. And then we pray for the Holy Spirit to be effectual in causing understanding in the hearts and minds of those who might believe. And this is uh, pretty important if you're raising children uh, in a Christian home. One of the things that Christian parents must do uh, is not wait for a profession of faith from a child before they begin to instruct them on who Jesus is and what he has done and how he has come to save humanity unto himself any more than you wait for a child to express interest in math before you start teaching them the basics or start expressing interest in language before you start teaching them grammar. Uh, you begin to teach them all of that skeleton information together so that at some point in the future, that, f- that information might become useful to them or understandable to them. It's also important for uh, us, as we think about the study of scriptures, you might read your Bible for months on end and have very little insight into what's exactly going on in these books or these chapters. And you can just be praying and trusting the whole time that somehow God is going to make this fruitful in your life for you to understand or to or you have a clearer picture of Christ through the means of his, his word. So Christ uses the scriptures to help us to understand the scriptures, and he does so by the attached means of his Holy Spirit. Now the meta-narrative of scripture is pretty clear. It's it's been named here a number of times, the whole Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets and the Writings, they refer to the story of Christ's suffering, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, which is what we see here in verse 50, 51, 52, and 53. That Jesus going and blessing the disciples and then ascending to the right hand of the Father is something he taught them all these things were to take place. And this is because the whole of the Old Testament has this meta-theology, or we might call it a biblical theology, of the Messiah who's coming to save his people, and he comes to save them by means of suffering in their stead, dying in their place, resurrecting on their behalf, and ascending to intercede on their behalf. And you can't go to, let's say, Genesis and quote a verse and say, here is a verse that proves all of these things are going to take place. Or you can't go to a specific verse in, let's say, Isaiah and say, here is one verse that says all of these things are going to take place. In order to see that bigger picture, you have to take the whole thrust, the whole Old Testament scripture story, and piece it together in a, in a right kind of way. Which means you need to know what does Genesis say, and what does Exodus say, and what does Deuteronomy say, and what does Isaiah got going on. And in doing so, you have this big meta narrative story that helps you to understand the bits and pieces of the the individual books themselves. This is a pretty classic way to uh, teach curriculum to students in school. Uh, Teachers often should uh, take a very complex subject and break it out into specific units which will be taught over long periods of time. And each of those specific units are small doses of the larger subject. And then when you finish the whole semester or the quarter or the end of the year, What's supposed to happen is the students begin to understand, oh, now I understand how uh, us doing our times tables led to us doing algebra, led to us understanding how to solve a complex multivariable equation. Uh, but you don't just get to that complex step and say, oh, see, it all makes sense. You have to do each step along the way in order to make sense of it. Or in, in very Christian Bible study kind of terminology, you've got to read Leviticus and, and feel the frustration of, I don't understand what's going on in these sacrifices. And it won't become clear to you until you recognize that here is Christ, the perfect sacrifice. That's a big story. And you need that individual chapter to make sense of that big story. The big story helps you to understand those individual inconsistencies. Or you're reading the book of Judges, and the motif is there is no king in Israel. Everyone does what's right in his own eyes. And You're reading Judges, and you think, if you just take the book of Judges, there's no solution in here. It's just all problem. In fact, it gets all the way worse, and it ends at the worst possible note. How does Judges make sense? You plug Judges into the biblical theological theme of a coming king who will perfectly reign over Christ's people, Psalm chapter 2. Well, now Judges begins to make sense. Judges tells us the problem, and Luke tells us the solution. Here's Jesus, the perfect king. So you need that big story. As a Christian, you need that big story to make sense of the individual pieces, but there's no way for me to copy and paste the big story into your minds as Christians. I do the best I can by trying to bring it about, but in some sense, you've got to build that story up yourself by your own study of the scriptures, and by reading them, and wrestling with them, and asking questions of them. That's how you build that story up in your own mind. So when, when Jesus uh, does this to his disciples, he, he, look, at the, look at the way he summarizes the story. Verse 46, he said to them, Thus it was written, And this is not written anywhere in the Old Testament, but this is a summary of the Old Testament. Thus it was written that the Christ would suffer, rise from the dead on the third day, and and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be preached in his name to all the nations, beginning in Jerusalem, and you then are my witnesses of these things. Here here he's summarizing large themes in Scripture which appear in, in no one or two verses. This is the whole story of Scripture, that the Christ would suffer, rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be preached, not just to the Jews, but also to all nations. Well, now you have to bull in verses like in Genesis, where God says to Abraham, through you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Or as Isaiah says, it is too small a thing for the Messiah to save only the Jews. He will also save the Gentiles unto himself. And there's many texts that anticipate this, but you have to kind of pull them all together under this major theme, this major story. And I've mentioned this uh, in the last couple of weeks, but this is the true difference between a Christian who reads the Old Testament and and a Jewish reader of the Old Testament, is you can read the same verses, the same chapters, the same words even, and there's a different big picture story operating for the Christian than there would be for a Jewish reader of these texts. And so then you could say, well, who's got the right meta story? Well, there's, these are two incompatible stories of how do you put these texts together. And you have to study the individual texts themselves to see which one best fits with that overall picture. And the claim of the New Testament writers is that the, the story of Jesus rising and triumphing over death is the best story that makes sense of all of these Old Testament texts. It's all very high-level, very theological very technical. Here's the practical reality of this. Notice what he says to the disciples in verse 48, or sorry, in verse 47. He says, repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be preached in his name among all the nations, beginning with Jerusalem. So we live 2,000 years after Jesus says these words. We, We take it for granted, many of you might, That on Sunday when you gather together with other Christians, you're going to listen to something like a lecture go on for somewhere between 30 minutes to an hour or whatever, and you think, well, this is just what people do when they come to church. They, They hear preaching happen. But there's precedent for this in the instructions of Jesus, that the preaching of the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Christ is how this message goes forward. And by the way, that preaching is not just contained actually to a church setting. In fact, in, in, the most, in the most natural context, it's going to be connected to a missionary setting where the apostles go forward as missionaries to be heralds of the truth that Christ has re- resurrected from the grave and he is now the victorious king over all creation. So disciples preach and preaching is the normal way, one way in which God makes his truth known to his people. Uh, you might not all be aware of the background of this, but... Um, it's become pretty common and maybe in like the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s for, uh, for Christians to begin to question how useful is preaching really? Or how useful is it for us to all gather together and listen to something like a lecture? Uh, why, why can't we just get around and Bible study together? Or why can't we just all get together and sing songs and then fellowship? Wh- what utility does preaching still have in the church? After all, we live in a generation where we can listen to sermons on our phones. We can study the Bible for ourselves in ways never before imagined. You can read books that take some of these themes and put them all together. There's many ways to get the word into you. So why do we still do preaching? Why don't we just fellowship, pray together, worship God, and then go our separate ways? Why preaching? Well, because preaching, just like scriptures, is an ordained means by which God says, here's how my message goes forward into the lives of people. It's not that in preaching you hear information you can't access elsewhere. It's not even that in preaching you hear information in a way you haven't heard it elsewhere. In fact, many times in a sermon you will hear information almost in the exact same way you've heard it before. And yet, by the activity of the Holy Spirit, it is effectual to bless you, to rebuke you, to encourage you, to strengthen you, to do all of these things which... Uh, God has said, here's how preaching blesses my people. So that when the apostles go forward and they preach, uh, they do this in all nations as an act of obedience to Christ who has sent them into all nations. They also write letters and they also plant churches. They do all those things, but preaching is a means by which the message goes out. They go out as heralds of this message. So in the Old Testament, it's not just anticipated that the Christ would suffer and die and resurrect, it's also anticipated that the message of Christ would be preached to all nations. I think that's that's something we might miss in this text, right? Because Jesus says, thus it was written that, thus it was written that Christ would suffer, thus it was written that Christ would rise from the dead on the third day, thus it was written that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be preached to all nations. These are all things that have been written and anticipated in the Old Testament. And if you want to say, well, where are these things written? Uh, The closest reference that I can think of, that's a one-verse summary. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14 says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So how does this message of Christ's victory over sin get out and accomplish that overcoming all the earth type stuff? Well, through preaching, through the message being relayed and propagated out. Uh, Jesus did not die. uh, on a video camera so that we could play the message of his death over and over again to many witnesses. He died and resurrected and appointed witnesses to witness to the truth of this message for generations to come. That might frustrate us, but this is how he has done it. This is how he has chosen to work in history. He, he died before cameras were invented, uh, before any of those other means of propagating a message were to go forward. He died, resurrected, and has said, here are witnesses to this event, and these witnesses will herald the truth of this event into all the world. And remember, these witnesses herald the truth of the Gentile inclusion into the people of God. So the apostles are not just witnesses to the Jewish people, as becomes clear in the book of Acts. They are witnesses also to the Gentiles, which, uh, as I think uh, we've heard many times before, uh, that's, that's us, basically. <laughs> um, here we are... Uh, thousands of miles away from the Middle East, the promised land. And we're talking about the savior of the Jewish people who has also become the savior of all people by God's plan. It's not as though the Gentiles were on the back burner of God's plan of salvation and happened to be included. This was God's plan from the beginning, that the Gentiles would be included as saved by the Christ. And that's a wonderful truth. And the apostles are sent forward as witnesses. The Gentiles are included in this picture of salvation. And then what Jesus does after he says, you will go forth and be my witnesses, um, the very next thing that happens is he says, I'm sending you what my father promised. So he tells them, you're going to do this work of preaching the gospel as witnesses on my behalf. And, And what... What enables you to do that? Well, I'm sending you forward with what my Father promised, so then stay in this city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now, we haven't read Acts chapter 2 yet, where Luke records for us this event taking place. They're praying, and the Holy Spirit descends upon them. But that's coming. The point for you to understand as a, as a uh, reader at this, at this juncture is to just say that Jesus does not send his people into the world defenseless. He does not send them into the world to just talk to other people about what happened. He sends them with the Holy Spirit so that their preaching and teaching and heralding of the good news might be effectual. And that same Holy Spirit is operant in the church today to make the message of the gospel effectual. You might often wonder to yourself, I've shared the gospel a dozen times or so with this person. I wonder if I could just say it a different kind of way for it to make sense to them. Or I wonder if I could just tweak the message a little bit in order for it to be attractive and then they would believe in Christ. And the reality is the Holy Spirit is the one who makes this message attractive to those who are not Christians. There's no distortion that's necessary. There's no modification that's necessary. Uh, As Paul says, we preach foolishness. But this is the very means of wisdom which God has appointed for his gospel to go forward. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, our gospel might be veiled, but even if it is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. I'm not saying that's a comforting message, but I'm saying that the gospel does not need to be modified so that more people will begin to believe it. It does not need to be tweaked in order to become more attractive. The gospel is not like a Nike branding where you need to think about the right ad campaign and the right logo and the right catchphrase in order to make this attractive so that people come and buy your merchandise. The gospel is what it is, and the Holy Spirit is what makes that gospel attractive. Not marketing, not messaging, not, not anything that we do to it. We actually are pretty, pretty well uh, carriers of the gospel message and pretty much nothing more. Our personalities do not really play into this. Our, it, it's simply the heralding of the truth of God's word that plays into this. And that's basically what he tells them. He says, you're going to be my witnesses. And he doesn't give them preaching tips or homiletical advice. He says, and I'm going to send you a Holy Spirit, just as I promised you to make this message effectual. I, I think that's, that's striking. And what that should do to us is make us recognize how weak and dependent we are upon Christ for the gospel to work. I think so often when we are wanting someone to come to salvation, we spend so much time thinking about how do I articulate this message? Or how do I defend the truthfulness of these words? And we don't often think, man, I should just pray that God would open their heart to this truth. I should just pray that the Holy Spirit would be with me as I speak so that it would make sense to them. If I can allude to what I said earlier, Uh, there's no technique or strategy to make a deaf person suddenly hear. You need a miracle for that to occur. There's no strategy to make a blind person see light. It doesn't matter how bright you turn it up or in what technique you flip the light switch. There's no way to get them to see it unless their eyes are opened. And that is just simply not up to us. It's outside of our control and therefore in the hands of the one whom we can trust to to do that well. At this uh, point in the text Jesus says he's going to send them the Holy Spirit. He takes them outside of the city as far as Bethany. He blesses them, and then he leaves. <laughs> how this, that's how this text ends. He blesses them, and then he leaves. And I'll comment nothing further. I think one commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, summarizes this very nicely. He says it this way. It seems to me that with this blessing, Jesus is guaranteeing the ultimate success of their mission. And this is what Christians all believe, that this gospel going forward will, in fact, be successful. Now, for those of you who are present at the eschatology night, you might be thinking, does this sound like... No, 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 no. This is, this is what all Christians believe, that the gospel will, in fact, be victorious. It's a question about what does that victory look like along the way, but everyone says the gospel is, in fact, victorious. This is what Dale Ralph Davis is saying, is that Jesus blesses his people so that they might be victorious, because God strives with them in their efforts. And so the concluding result is they, they see Christ ascend and they go off worshipping Christ and notice they worship him. These are monotheistic Jews who have worshipped Yahweh their whole life and here they are worshipping Jesus. And it's not that they became polytheists overnight. They began to understand something that we still defend to this day that Christ is God. We do not believe in uh, uh, three gods up in heaven. We do not believe in two gods up in heaven. Christians believe in one God. As Paul says, there is one God, and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He's both God worthy of worship and intermediary between God and mankind. And so he serves a dual functionality, or as we think about in the Advent season, uh, He's not just God, he's also incarnate humanity. And both are necessary for his work as Savior. Both are required. And so they worship him. And there's not really much more to say about that. They worship him as, as God. Here Luke is saying we didn't just worship him as an exalted prophet. We worshiped him. They worshiped him because they believed him to be God. This is not a third century invention of the church. Here is the earliest disciples of Jesus worshiping him as soon as he ascends to heaven. And let me say just, uh, just a bit, I, I mentioned we're going to talk about the scriptures, we're going to talk about the spirit. Um, now I've left only a little bit of time to talk about the session of Christ, which is him in his current role, as he even stands today. What is he doing in heaven? We might think, I, I think we often think this, that it would have been better for Christ to hang around on earth and continue to witness and to continue to go around all the world saying, here, you don't believe that I died and resurrected? Touch my hand, touch my side. Here I am before you, will you not believe in me? We think uh, that would have been very effective for the gospel to go forward, for atheists not to exist. We, we think that would have been the solution. And here, Christ does unnecessary work by leaving his disciples on earth and ascending to the right hand of the Father. So what's necessary about this? Well, we might think about Christ's activity towards his people to make them aware of his incarnation and his resurrection and and him revealing the truth of Scripture to us. That's Christ's work to help humanity to understand this is who he is. But there's a totally other aspect of Christ's work, which is the work of Christ, not not from God to us, to help us to understand God, but from us to God, To help God be okay with us as his sinful people. This is called his his session. He sits at the right hand of God the Father. And from that place, he pleads for us. On our behalf. So that when we sin and we pray and ask for forgiveness, it's not as though we pray hoping that God will forgive. Here's Jesus at the right hand of the Father saying, and look, I died for their sin." It is forgiven he so when we when we pray for forgiveness it's not as though we we pray and we hope that God will forgive us we pray knowing that Christ is there actively interceding on our behalf so that we might truly be forgiven we can in conclusion have confidence in the forgiveness of Christ so when Jesus goes to the right hand of the Father it's it's in some sense to our benefit that that happens but not in the sense that uh, it's better for us to not be with jesus in the in the sense that here he's doing a necessary work that we continue to rely on him for to this day that he intercedes between us and god saying to the father here these are my people i have died for them have mercy on them and so we don't just hope that god will forgive sins we know that he will because of christ's session currently at the right hand of the father He does something else in his session, in his being seated at the right hand of the Father, which is he sends us his Holy Spirit who awakens our hearts enlivens our preaching. We've already touched on that a little bit. And he does one more thing, which I think is not quite so obvious, but the Apostles Creed summarizes it this way. In his session, one of the things he's doing is he's waiting from where he will come to judge the living and the dead. So in his session, in him going to the right hand of the Father, Something that is, is happening kind of in the background there is that the ultimate final judgment of sin finally on this earth is not yet complete. And it's not yet complete because he's still seated at the right hand of the Father. When he once again rises from his seat and returns to earth, then will come the end, as the creed summarizes. So in his session, in some sense, he's, he's also exercising patience long-suffering, steadfast endurance, so that more would have an opportunity to repent and believe on him. If Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father and then two weeks later returned, it would have been nice for the apostles, but it wouldn't have been nice for Cornelius, who doesn't yet know about Christ. It would not have been good for Saul, who later becomes Paul, because he does not yet know about Christ. It would not have been good for a host of individuals who come later to believe in Christ. And it would not have been good for any of us who have come to believe in Christ since he is now still waiting patiently at the right hand of the Father, waiting to judge sin. I think that's a not-so-obvious aspect to his current session, is that he's patiently waiting and enduring with our sin and our weakness. So in conclusion, these verses teach us clearly not just about what the scriptures do for us and are still relevant to, not just that they're still relevant to us. It also teaches us that scriptures are the means by which the Holy Spirit works and continues to work in our lives. And also that Christ is not uh, doing nothing right now. He is active and interceding on our behalf so that we might have fellowship with God and with one another. He actively sends to us a spirit He actively orchestrates sovereignly all things unto himself, and he does so for the benefit of his bride, the church. So let's pray. Father, you are sovereign God over all things, Lord of all creation, and you are also patient and merciful and kind slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And how you can be holy and merciful is summed up for us in your Son, who right now is our hope, who right now is our advocate, and who right now is the one who actively intercedes for us in every sin. Father, we thank you that Christ's work is not finished, It is ongoing. It is continual. And Lord, we pray that his work would be effectual, not just in our hearts as his people, but also that more would come to know you through the activity of Christ and through the activity of the Spirit. That we, your people, would be blessed by your Holy Spirit and that we would also be uh, ambassadors and heralds faithfully proclaiming your message of repentance. We pray this in your name. Amen.